Hi, John. How are you today? I'm good, Elliot. One of the things that you and I have hopefully been throughout these conversations have been nimble. <laughs> so when we talk about a couple of things that we want to cover, late breaking news changes that. So we want to make sure we're as current as possible, given that we do these things midweek and post on Fridays. But you have something that you just learned. And then we want to spend a little bit of time talking about Treasury's publishing of their 2024 National Risk Assessment for Money Loaning, Terrorist Financing, and Proliferation Finance that just came out. But you have some breaking news that I know is relevant to our audience. Yes. The notice of proposed rulemaking from FinCEN on, I'm sorry, anti-money laundering regulations for residential real estate transfers has been sent to the Federal Register and is queued up to be published officially on the 16th of February. But the uh, draft coming from Treasury is actually available to take a look at. And I took a quick look because I've only had it for about 25 minutes. There's a lot of history and all that other stuff, which you would expect. But the focus is, and I'm quoting here from the from this executive summary, proposed rule would require certain persons involved in residential real estate closings and settlements to file and to maintain a record of a streamlined version of a suspicious activity report. The important thing to understand here is that the transactions that would be covered are residential transactions, which were not financed, so essentially in cash, and where the buyer was a legal entity or a trust. So that's a very narrow slice, but as you read through the document, uh, it's clear that FinCEN is looking to try to extract the key data that is helpful in tracking illicit transactions as opposed to getting a SAR about every in-cash residential real estate transfer in the United States. I did think that it was interesting that it's limited to residential because we're aware of the fact that there have been many illicit transactions on the commercial side, but I think right. this is very much focused on dealing with the transactions that we hear about oligarchs and other bad actors who acquire high-end real estate for cash and they stick it into an entity. It's going to have a 60-day comment period. There's a lot in here that will be worthwhile for people who are new to the real estate conversation because the entire history, the various exemptions that have been created, the use of the geographic targeting orders, GTOs, is well documented in here. We're finally going to have something, and I'm going to usurp your normal comment. Take a look at it when it publishes on the 16th, and absolutely, if you have comments, send them in, because FinCEN will pay attention to the comment. doesn't mean they'll change it the way anyone commenter point, uh, talks about it, but given the importance of this, it'll be important for the financial services side, not just the real estate industry, to be commenting on this. That's right. And it'll be interesting to see what, if anything, gets said about the lack of the commercial side. But you're obviously spot on regarding the the focus on things like oligarchs purchasing property and that sort of thing. Before we talk about the Treasury report, just one other quick item we wanted to, to mention. It's just an example of continued focus on corruption, specifically in the U.S. But the IRS on their website posted a notice that there were additional offenses charged in a fraud case in Alabama that involved the Jefferson County Community Service Fund. And the reason it's referenced is because a state representative 
was indicted by a federal grand jury for committing conspiracy, wire and mail fraud, obstruction of justice, and those sorts of things. I read it. I think it's interesting that this fund was created to help the community, and it's been charged that this particular defendant received close to $500,000, and there were kickbacks and all sorts of things. But again, the IRS, CI, primary agency that deals with financial crime, it's a good example of fraud being committed at all sorts of levels. But again, going after elected officials with a ton of evidence based on this press release, we thought we would just mention that as just another item that our law enforcement agencies are doing in conjunction with working with local law enforcement. But this particular one was IRS, FBI investigated the case with investigators from the Alabama Attorney General's office, AUSAs and, and others. And I have one other quick one before we go to the risk assessments, and that is it's being reported by AML Intelligence that the UAE will be coming off the, the FATF gray list at the February plenary. Uh, fe- February plenary is toward the end of the month, and you and I will certainly talk about the results after they're published. FATF isn't commenting on it, but Intelligence is saying that UAE has gotten the green light to move off the gray list. And go into the highlight here, and that's the Treasury publishing three 2024 national risk assessments. These are always tools for compliance officers to map what they are doing internally in terms of dealing with these risk categories. And so the money law and terrorist financing, proliferation financing, there'll be a strategy issued in a few weeks to deal with all these. But I'll mention with some of the things I saw in the terrorist financing one, but I know you've been able to take a quick look at the money laundering risk assessment. Yes, just a couple highlights. Fraud remains the largest and most significant proceed generating crime for which funds are laundered in or through the United States. You know, when we when you and I talk, as we often do, about this fraud scheme or that fraud scheme, it's important to remember for all of us in the community that leads often directly to a money laundering event. Uh, Corrupt officials, which you just talked about, uh, continues to be an important challenge. Uh, The prevalence of professional money laundering organizations, groups, that is their business. And Chinese money laundering organizations, CMLOs, are called out specifically. Of course, illicit drugs and particularly fent are called out. And there is a call out for the fact that some regulated financial services organizations remain a money laundering vulnerability, even though they have an adequate program. It's always the, what else can we do? What have we not thought of? There's a reference to the fact that cash, even though we feel like we've moved beyond, cash is still a major component of the results of illicit activity. And virtual assets pops up, of course, as well. Not surprisingly, we continue to have to deal with it. The other thing and the last thing I'll mention is I thought it was very interesting in the fraud space, investment fraud schemes represented the highest aggregate reported dollar loss to victims for the first time. And it replaced business email compromise, which was a focal point for a really long time. And I'll quote from the report, Social media influencers have contributed to and have facilitated investment fraud by using their large audiences and fans' rapport to solicit funds for investment fraud schemes. So many of those deals are done in virtual currencies. 
a lot going on there. So just, again, reading the whole thing and the documents that will follow is important. But um, those are the, my highlights from the money laundering risk assessment. So on the proliferation finance, real quick, Russia and North Korea presented high risks since the 2022 assessment. So take a look at that. But on uh, terrorist financing, consistent with the last risk assessment for 2022, the most common financial connections is between individuals in the U.S. and foreign terrorist groups when they directly solicit funds to send funds to foreign terrorist groups, utilizing cash, registered money services, businesses, and in some cases, virtual assets. Although it makes clear that not a lot of these terrorist groups spend a lot of time with virtual assets yet. The report also discusses Hamas and the ways they exploit the international financial system through the solicitation of funds from witting and unwitting donors worldwide. And that goes to our constant conversations about de-risking and all of that. So take a look at that. And then the thing I wanted to highlight, which is so important, so sad, is that domestic violent extremist movements have proliferated in recent years. And the section is very dramatic in its characterization. And this has been on the rise for a number of years. And the government uses five categories based on ideological motivations to these domestic violent extremists. They're racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists, which is the most prevalent group according to law enforcement, anti-government or anti-authority violent extremists that include militia violent extremists, animal rights, environmental violent uh, extremists, abortion-related violent extremists, and then other ones that don't fit in any of the four categories. But they say that, again, the most concerning threat is the domestic violent extremists, and those are particularly driven by a belief in the superiority of the white race, as discussed in more detail in the report, and they they pose the most consistent threat of lethal and non-lethal violence against religious, cultural, and government targets. This is an increase in focus since 2022, although they did mention it last time, and there are some specific examples in the report. They talked about uh, February of last year, where two individuals were charged federally with conspiracy to destroy an energy facility. In April of last year, they sentenced several for material support to terrorists, and it was to attack power grids and that, that sort of thing. So again, this is a heightened focus, something that needs to be considered by our community in terms of reporting They do give you some sense of what those financial footprints may look like, but this is a sad, evolving area. So wanted to mention that. I just did a podcast with Harry Redboard on digital virtual assets, and he talked a little bit about this report as well. That's a separate conversation. You'll learn more about that when we post that interview. But again, take a look at all of these risk assessments, map it to your own institutions, talk to your colleagues, see what they are doing. And then obviously we would anticipate very shortly the 2024 national strategy for combating terrorists and other illicit finance from the Treasury Department with consultation from all the federal agencies, the banking agencies, law enforcement, and other related federal agencies. A lot in a short time. John, this month's webinar, you want to talk about that? You want me to talk about that? Why don't you talk about that? All right. This month's webinar is February 22nd. You can register at the website. And it's a focus on banking as a service, the intersection between traditional financial services companies and 
financial technology companies and how they work together and the risks to each. Our colleague Chuck Taylor will be moderating and he has two great panelists, both working at banks that offer banking as a service, as a, as a product line. And they're going to talk about what are the risks? How do they manage them? What are the regulators thinking these days? I was logged into their prep session yesterday and it's going to be a great conversation. So I urge everybody to do that. John, you mentioned your podcast that we're going to post in the near future. What else do you have in the pipeline? We mentioned this last week. There was a research academic paper from a professor at George Mason University's the SCAR School of Policy and Government, which I also teach at, on the use of misinformation that severely impacts Muslim organizations. So I'm going to do that interview tomorrow, and we'll obviously post that in a few weeks. I also mentioned that BrightSource's own Rachel Detmer wrote a piece that's on our site, the recap of the human trafficking webinar that we did last week. Excellent analysis and recap. So I urge people to take a look at that when they have the time. Yes. And we would be remiss if we didn't give one of our other projects a push, and that is the AML Partnership Forum for 2024. That event will be in Washington, D.C., March 18 through the 20. It's an organization and an event that's focused on building public-private partnerships between the private financial sector and federal law enforcement. You can still register for the event at amlpf.com and just click on the registration link and it'll take you both to register to the event. And if you're coming from out of town to get a hotel room at the Mayflower Hotel, which is where the event is being held. And just a reminder about that program, no press, there's no vendor exhibit halls. It's really designed to have an exchange of important information and networking between the private and public sectors. It's our third annual. And I know if you have the opportunity to attend, you're going to get a lot out of it. Agreed. Okay, John, I know that you're uh, away from your home base. So in your travels, do them safely. And I will talk to you next week. Sounds good. Marquette, seventh in the nation, folks. We'll talk to you next week. (laughs) Bye-bye, John. 